All right, ladies, welcome. Second to last week. Great job finishing it up. I hope your small groups have been a fun and fruitful conversation. I feel like ours just got more and more honest each week. I mean, people now just sit down and they're like, I didn't do day five. (laughs) This is what makes a good small group. No faking it. It's great. Um, As you're kind of getting settled, guys, um, December 10th is going to be our women's Christmas event. Um, If you're new to Veritas or, I mean, we didn't get to do it last year, but this is our big party. Uh, This is that one time of year where we don't wear joggers and tennis shoes, but we actually uh, pull out all the stops and eat good food and have some fun. But really, guys, the big thing is that we would hope that you would invite your friends and neighbors. This is a time for Veritas Women to get outside of ourselves, um, to invite people that maybe wouldn't otherwise come into church, um, a way to show them that this is a place that they can belong, find community, and, and hear good good truth. So December 10th. Um, who knows what time it starts? Olivia, what are we doing? Yeah. Let's say we're going to 6.30, Marsha, 6.30 is when it is. Yeah, there you go. 6.30 to 8.30. There we go. Okay, so you guys were just having an amazing conversation. That's why, right? Jennifer Pratt was laying down gospel. You have to sit front row then. Come on. You can't sit. No. (laughs) Okay, fine. Fine, you're the boss. All right, so we uh, picked up the pace this week. Guys, we did a chapter and a half in one week. You probably felt that. I felt that. It felt like there was a lot to cover in just a week and a half. And we're going to do that again next week as we finish up. But good news is that next week we get to talk about the armor of God. Bad news is we have to read, wives submit to your husbands. So you win some, you lose some. But I hope that you enjoy the finale. What? The Armor of God song or the Wives Submit to Your Husband song? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay, so here's what we opened with this week, guys. Starting in chapter four. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you've received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. You guys probably noticed a bit of a pivot in Paul's tone this week. This is like the hinge of the talk. It's right in the middle of the book. Even though we're close to being done with our study, this is actually the the middle of Ephesians. And you feel Paul switch from kind of like a, almost like a professor voice to a coach voice is how we said it in our small group. So he goes from laying out the, the theory, the doctrine of chapters one through three, and now it's practical. And he just lets it rip. I mean, if you look through this chapter and a half, you see command after command after command after command. Do this, do this, do this. The fancy words is that Paul goes from the indicative to the imperative. The this is the big story of God's family. And now this is how you should behave in God's big family. 
And here's, you know, he, he listed it on and on, but essentially he's saying this is what it should look like. It should look like unity. So let's make sure that we're understanding this because, guys, before we pick apart how we're supposed to behave at God's big family, we need to be reminded of what we read the first three chapters. He's saying because of that list of blessings in chapter one, because you are chosen, because you are loved, act like this. Because you are redeemed and forgiven, you should act like this. Remember, we talked about this image of being under a fountain. That fountainhead is Christ. And all of the spiritual blessings are given to those who are in his family. Because of these truths, because you're no longer spiritually dead, 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 but you are alive together with Christ, act like it. You're in God's family. Therefore, behave. That's kind of what goes on here. And here's my problem. Here's my problem with Paul this week, guys. I read this chapter and a half, and I see this long list. We just read a couple of them. Humility, gentleness, patience. He goes on. He talks about no bitterness, no rage. Is it the ESV where he says no brawling? (laughs) He says no lying, no stealing. Be kind, be compassionate. My problem as I read this is I say, that's impossible. I feel like a failure before I've even started. I say, impossible. I say, that makes me feel so much pressure. Does anyone in here deal with pressure? Yes. Anyone maybe deal with pressure, but you're not willing to admit it. Maybe you don't know. You don't have to be a certain type of personality to deal with pressure. It's just more obvious in some of our lives than others. But this chapter and a half brought to surface how much I deal with pressure and how very uh, paralyzing that is in my life. I look at all of these imperatives, these commands, this overall, we talked about how this is about image bearing. And I'm saying, Paul, image bearing is impossible. I can't do it. I can't behave in the way that you are telling me to. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Sorry, I can't do it. And so then it makes me not even want to try. Or I look at one of these small little half-sentence commands and I said, well, I already screwed that up, so I might as well just completely fall over the edge in that command. So let's talk about this, guys. Remember, we've been saying that Paul is saying it's so good to be in God's family, or we've used the language of there's always room at God's family dinner table. But what I felt this week is is that I'm sitting at God's dinner table, but it's not like this nice casual family dinner. Instead, it's like I'm sitting at like the palace. I'm sitting at this really hoity-toity, intense dinner at Buckingham Palace, and I look down and I have to have perfect posture, and I have to speak like a lady, and I look down and there's six forks and three plates and a million spoons, and I don't know if I'm going to make it through this dinner behaving like I'm supposed to, and it's miserable. I'm sitting there miserable at God's dinner table, so to speak, and there's something not right about that. There is way too much pressure If this is God's word, should it be full of pressure? I am hoping that the answer is no. And so as we look through Paul's words, maybe we can find ways that that pressure actually gets released. So another good image of this that I think a lot of us know is how many of us have an Instapot? 
Everyone know what an Instapod is? Okay, I hate mine. I absolutely hate my Instapod. Everyone was getting them a couple years ago. So, someone in my family got me mine, and I hate it. There's a chance that I should have read the manual. Maybe food would taste better if I would have used the manual. But every single time, I just think it's, the meat tastes horrible or stuff's overcooked or undercooked, whatever. But if you can picture it, you put your food in there, you put your liquid in there, and then you put the lid on and seal it. And there's this little valve. Track with me. Do you guys know what I'm saying? There's this valve. And when you're done cooking it, you're supposed to switch over the valve and it goes, and the pressure is releasing. I think there's a couple observations we can make in the text today that are going to be a pressure release valve for us as members of God's big family. Okay, so let's look at, at a couple of these in the text. We're looking to release pressure so that we can see his commands as doable. The first thing that he talked about is unity. Well, what did we learn about unity? He says in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Well, in our homework, we slow down and we ask, why does he use that word keep? Or in the NIV, he uses the word maintain. And what difference does that make? Well, this is good news for us, guys. If we are being told to maintain and keep the peace, then that means that we, it is not on our shoulders to create that unity. We've already read that, actually, in Ephesians. We read that when we become members of God's family, we are given unity with one another. I think that's our first step, is to see that we are given unity. But he does, he does kind of sit on this for a little bit and show us that in unity, it, it, it's kind of, even though we're just to maintain it, it's not going to be easy to do so because there's two ditches on the road of, of unity, right? It's like we're walking this tightrope and on one side, it's just disunity. That's where we're brawling over everything that we disagree about. But on this side, there is keeping the peace at the cost of good doctrine. That's why Paul says, hey, there's one body, one baptism, one hope, one Lord. He says, yeah, keep the peace, family of God, but not at the cost of good doctrine. And he makes that really clear. But that, that makes it hard. That makes it daunting for me. How am I to keep this unity? Well, I think there's something in there about maintaining this rather than obtaining it. Think about how much easier it is. Like if your house is clean, it's so much easier to keep it clean rather than letting it get horribly messy and broken and then cleaning it, right? So let's just pause right here before we go on. You, do, is there a relationship in your life that you need to realize because this relationship is within the body of Christ, you've been given unity rather than you need to build it, create it, obtain it yourself? Is there a relationship in your life that's just kind of plagued with some conflict, some disappointment, some strife? Does that create pressure on you. We don't have to go any further before we have something to apply here, guys. It's so good to be in God's family, namely because he has given us unity through the spirit of peace. We saw that in chapter two. Breathe a little bit. Feel that pressure release valve go off and understand that God has provided for you in this relationship. And then go forward, move forward moving towards peace and unity. 
What relationship in your life needs that good news? Feel that weight come off of your shoulders. God has provided for us. Secondly, what did we read that he gave us? Not just unity, but we read this week that being in the family of God means that we are given gifts. Paul went to the Psalms and he uh, quoted Saul in verse 8. He says, when he ascended on high, he took captives captive and he gave gifts to people. It seems like such an obscure verse, but it says right there that we're given gifts. So what does that not mean? It doesn't mean that you have to go out there and be original and find a gift pick it up and claim it that it's yours. You don't have to create a gifting. You have been given gifts if you're in God's good family. But there's even more here. Let's look at a couple of these details of this topic of gifting. When he describes Jesus in this psalm, he's describing him as a Roman conqueror. And other New Testament authors say that use this like a literary skill as well. Describing Jesus as a Roman conqueror, it would have been a very familiar to the original readers. He says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. So we need to see that the giver of gifts is King Jesus and that he is the winner. It's the, it's the triumphant King Jesus. It's like a parade after a war where the hostages are all behind him in chains. And as he's parading forward victoriously, he's giving gifts to his people. Your job then is to receive it and to be thankful for it. Right away, I think that that's another pressure release valve. It's not on us to find these gifts and create them, but to receive them. Think about this, guys. On Christmas, who has less pressure? The kid receiving the gift or the mom who has been buying the gifts, planning the gifts, and distributing them? Right? It's so good to be a kid on Christmas. Your only job is to receive them. Now I know how miserable, well, some of you love it. I'm miserable at giving gifts. It stresses me out financially, logistically, everything stresses me out. But this reminded me of how good it is to be a child and to receive gifts. What have we been saying this whole study? That we are a child of God. How good it is to be in God's family. He gives gifts to us. We receive them, but there's even more here that kind of tie, is starting to tie Ephesians all together because we talked about how we're called to unity, but not uniformity, right? That's Bible Project. I need to give them credit for that. So we are supposed to be unified, but guys, we're not supposed to all look the exact same. We're not supposed to be this vanilla church of God. We're not supposed to be homogenous. And I think that's an important point to understand at this point in the book, because in the kind of the broad sweeping strokes of chapters one through three, we would look from afar at the family of God, almost like it's a tapestry or a painting. And we would, we would think, oh, well, it's just one color, or it's just, it's so supposed to be unified that it looks like it's one color from afar. But as we zoom in in chapter four, we see, oh, no, it's not. It's multifaceted. It's multicolored. It's multi-gifted. And again, guys, that releases some pressure. You don't have to look like every other woman in your Bible study small group. You don't even have to behave like her, speak like her, have the same habits and way of life. You don't have to have the same story. And we feel the pressure release that maybe I can use this gift I've been given in this way or that way. And it doesn't have to look exactly like other ways that I've seen it. 
Okay, so we are told to be unified, but not to be uniform. Still on this topic of gifts, where, where else did we read some good news? Well, we read this week that we are all members of one body. Guys, when we start talking about gifts, who can be honest and say, who do you immediately start thinking about when we talk about spiritual gifts? Yourself, right? How many of you love to do personality tests? Why? Because the subject is this girl. Oh my goodness, yay, it's that week in the text where we learn about spiritual gifts, and so we just immediately start orbiting around ourselves and thinking about what we can learn about ourselves. It's our favorite subject. Maybe it's just me. You guys are being oddly quiet. People on Sunday night were very interactive on that point. How is it that this is actually good news from Ephesians 4? We think we want to be the main star. We think we want to be the hero of the story, the main subject. Guys, there's so much pressure. If we're the hero of our own story, if we're the main character, if every conversation comes back to us, actually, it puts a ton of pressure on us. But Paul is laying out that we are all members of one body and that the purpose of the gifts is not for our own building up, our own puffing up, but it's for the good of God's church. And feel that pressure release valve go off a little bit more. The gifts that come from the triune God do not sit heavy on us, but they empower us and ironically free us up to bear his image well. But it's not for us. It's for the communal good. The gifts that he gives us, the unity that he gives us, he lays out that they are for our image-bearing good because we read that as we use our gifts in unity, that we look less like a child and more like who? The son. We look more like Christ. We grow up looking more and more like him the more that we obey Paul's commands in this freedom. So we have to ask the question, same question I think Kate asked last week, what's at risk if we don't believe this? What's at risk at this point in the text if we don't believe that we can live a life worthy of the calling that we received? What's at risk if we don't aim for unity if we don't use our gifts to their greater good? Well, I think he lays it out that we're at risk for immaturity. We're at risk being stuck acting like children, looking like children, talking like children. And maybe that's not that compelling, but then he follows it up by talking about how we are tossed to and fro. Who feels good when they're tossed to and fro? Don't we want to feel safe? Don't we want to feel tethered? And that's what the family of God does for us, is that it tethers us in, the, in this wonderful place within God's family where we can serve and where we can flourish. That is our motivation to move forward in unity, to move forward in our gifting, living this life worthy. There's no pressure related to gifts, guys. There is actually freedom. My question at this point is then, do we feel freed to use our gifts. Get specific in your own life, guys. Think about your role in the family of God, whether it's Veritas or the bigger family of God. Do you actually feel freed to use your gifts? You know what? And this isn't even so much like go print off three different spiritual gifts tests and find out what your gifts are. I would even just say, take this long, hefty list from Paul of how we're supposed to behave. Do you feel freed up? to serve the body of Christ in these ways, by bearing with one another in love, by being humble, by being gentle, 
by casting off anger and instead speaking the truth in love. What did we read this week about these gifts? Who, who is carrying the weight of the ministry work? Is it the professional Christians? No, we read that the pastors and the apostles and the teachers, they are given gifts to equip who? The saints. The 99% of people who don't get a paycheck from the church. That's most of you guys. That's not pressure. That's freedom to get to work, to be on task, to live on mission with the gifts that you have been given. Feel the freedom to use your gifts to be fully employed in the kingdom of God. Okay, so we see two things that have been given so far, unity and gifts. There's a third one in here that I think Paul wants us to see. Verse 15 of chapter 4, he says, But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. When we are in God's big family, we are given a new head, and that is Christ. Again, ready for a fancy phrase? We're going to talk about federal headship. Okay, so I'm going to push you guys to think about this. And also, remember that one time when I put a chart in the Bible study and we never went back and did the second half of the chart? You wouldn't believe the amount of pressure I put on myself when I realized I made that mistake. But we're going to redeem that right now. We're going to build some charts in the air up here, two columns, okay? And we're going to talk about federal headship. We read in, in our reading this week that Christ is our head. Somehow, from this confusing truth, we are going to hear some pressure leave our mindset and leave our soul and get out of our, our patterns. Christ is our head. So what was the context when he started talking about this, guys? Paul starts talking about the Gentiles again. And for some of you, you probably got con confused because it was just two chapters ago that he's like, hey, there's no more Jew, there's no more Gentile, there's just one new man. But then he started talking, saying, well, don't live like the Gentiles. It was kind of confusing. It's like he's talking about them as if they're not in the room. Well, what are we supposed to make of that? Well, what he's saying is that there are these Gentiles. There are these people who are not in the family of God. They are not at the, the dinner table of God's family. They are not those who have been given this unity and given this gifts. He's saying these, there are these people, the Gentiles, and they do not have the headship of Christ. Instead, they have the headship of Adam. This is going to be our first column over here. What does it mean to have Adam as your head? So when I say Adam, we mean the Adam from the Garden of Eden, okay? Just to make sure that's really clear. Adam is the head of the Gentiles. So before we are in Christ, guys, before we we have the federal headship of Christ. We are under Adam. And this is what that means. It means that when he sinned in the garden, he was representing us. That's really bad news. So if you're not in Christ, then you're in Adam. It means that it's like you were in the garden with him when he chose to sin, when he chose to rebel. It's like you sinned and you rebelled. When Adam failed to bear the image of God, when he failed to be the icon for God, there's that image-bearing language, so did we. This is bad news. Adam represents us. Adam implicates us. Adam's failure is our failure, okay? Are you filling up this column, so to speak? 
Adam's failure is our failure. He plunged us not just into sin as a behavior, but sin as a nature. He plunged us into a corrupt, blemished nature, that we are sinners. When Adam is our head, guys, it means that sin masters us. When we are in Adam, sin has dominion over us, right? This is this Genesis 1 through 3 language that we've been using for this whole study. This is what it means to be in Adam. It's bad news. It means that we are slaves to sin, that we are oppressed by sin, that we are beat up by sin when Adam is our head. He's saying the Gentiles, they are still in Adam. Don't live like them. Conversely, this column, when Christ is our head, what does this mean? So sin entered, this comes from Romans 5 too, another one of Paul's letters. This means that where sin entered through Adam, life entered through Christ. Ladies, if you are in Christ, that's the phrase we've been using for all of this, what does that actually mean? I want you to hear how this, how this um, like if we're going to line up what was true about Adam, this is what's true about being in Christ as if we're putting them across the, the aisle from each other. When Christ obeyed, it's like we obeyed. That should blow our mind. Remember, when Adam sinned, it's like we sinned. Really bad news. But when Christ obeyed, it's like we obeyed. Christ, the perfect image bearer, the exact imprint of God's nature. So where Adam represented us, now Christ represents us. But Christ represents us more like an attorney, like a defense attorney in a courtroom where Adam implicated us, what does Christ do? He exonerates us. Adam's failure was our failure, but for Christ, his victory is our victory. He plunged us into his righteousness, and now our nature is redeemed. When Christ is our head, guys, sin doesn't master us. We master our sin. We are no longer ruled over, but we rule for God. Now, I want to pause here and make sure we see this distinction, guys. So we have this column of bad news, but when we are now in Christ, it doesn't just get us back to, like, zero. It doesn't just get us back to equilibrium. It's so much better. See, Adam was a type of Christ. He was a shadow of Christ. And throughout the Bible, we see how shadows, arrows pointing to Christ, are the lesser thing pointing to the better thing. So for all the ways that Adam failed as an arrow pointing to Christ, the truth about being in Christ is so much better. So we're not just stuck here at zero, hoping that we can obey all that Paul has laid out, but we're actually brought all the way over in Christ, under Christ's federal headship. And it's really good news for us, especially this truth that it's not just that sin doesn't rule over us and beat the tar out of us. It's that we stand here as more than conquerors ruling with Christ. Remember, we talked about how Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and that is our reality right now. That we, while we live on earth, are spiritually seated with Christ in a position of authority. That means that that is our position over sin. That is our position over that anger we read about, that malice that we read about, that brawling that we read about. We stand on top of it when Christ is our head. 
Guys, God deals with all of humankind through one of two men. He is either dealing with you through Adam or through Christ. Everyone that we see, God deals with them through one of two men. Adam, the original man, the original head of all humanity. Or through Christ, the head of God's new humanity. And I know that that's super cerebral and it could be kind of, kind of a scholastic to learn about. But guys, here's what we need to understand at the heart level. If we don't believe that this is where we started in this column, if we don't believe that we were in Adam, then we don't need the gospel. If we think that had we been in the garden, we would have done a better job, then we don't need to be in Christ. We don't need rescue. We don't need to be chosen and blessed and brought into the family of God. Like chapter 2, if we don't believe that we're dead, 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 we can never be made alive together with Christ. But guys, as far as application goes, this third thing that we were given makes all the difference in how we live. We need to see that this column is our identity. Because what have we been saying about identity? Our behavior is strongly influenced by who we believe that we are. Guys, this is not overly feminized, soft talk about identity. This is some hard-hitting, big truths about who we are. Why do I feel so much pressure when I read that chapter and a half about how I'm supposed to be this really good Christian woman and I just can't do it? Because I have forgotten who I am. I've forgotten whose I am. I think that I'm still just stuck right here in this middle, walking this tightrope of unity and good behavior and playing well with others. One second away from falling into one ditch or the other. But this is not our current standing in Christ. It's not just that you're not in Adam. This is where you are. You are in this column, guys. He is your head. His victory is yours. And he has plunged you into his righteousness. So then... We are ready for chapter 5 that opens with, therefore, imitate God. Now I read this, I say, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love. And I say, okay, I can do that. (laughs) Oh, what? I can do that? I'm not going to brawl. I'm not going to be drunk on my own malice and envy. I'm in Christ. I can do it. I'm no longer a slave to sin. But like Paul, I'm a slave to righteousness. And the irony about being a slave to righteousness is that we're free. The irony that Paul is showing us, guys, is that whether you are in a Roman prison or any other unfortunate circumstance, if you are in Christ, you are free. We are free to obey. We are free to serve. But at the risk of this staying just kind of theoretical, guys, remember we've been trying to make Ephesians a picture book. So we went back to Luke 15. 
we went back one more time to the parable of the prodigal son. And we looked for some images that would make this come alive for us. So let's land on this image, guys. Why did that son leave? Why did he come back? What can we learn from this? Well, we see that he leaves home looking for where the grass is greener on the other side. He left home to party. He left home because he had his identity wrong. He acted like an orphan, didn't he? He acted like he didn't have parents. In fact, if you really look at the details of this, he's just acting like his dad's already dead, like an orphan. He's acting like he doesn't have a father. He wants his inheritance now. And he takes off and he lives, lives it up. And when the grass is no longer greener and there's a drought and he can't even be satisfied with what the pigs are eating, it says in verse 17 of Luke 15 that when he comes to his senses, he says, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. And he makes this plan to come back as we already looked at. And he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired hands, one of your hired workers. And so he starts back on his way home to his father. What can we learn from the son? He got his identity wrong, not once, but twice. He acted like an orphan, and then he acted like a slave. Both times missing the reality of whose he was. He was a child of a loving father. And because he was wrong about who he was, his behavior was all sorts of a mess. Both times. Two different rounds. Do we ever get our identity wrong? Don't we so often run off attempting to find a better definition of the good life? Don't we so often just stiff-arm God and fill that space with all sorts of foolish living? living like the Gentiles do. But then so often do we return the wrong way as well. If we've had a little bit of rebellion, we've had some mistakes, we've been addicted to this or that, we've had a loose tongue, we've been cold, we've been bitter. Guys, don't we so often return the wrong way, thinking that we need to come back as something less than a son or a daughter. We come back like we have a debt to pay off. We come back like we're still in Adam rather than in Christ. And so we take it slow, thinking that we have to prove to God that we mean it. Think we need to work our way back into his good graces, thinking that we have at least to some degree lost our place at the dinner table of God's big family. It's not true. The Father meets us on the road. And how did he... How did he meet him? With warmth, with grace. And we looked at a detail. What did he give his son? But three items of clothing. In a way, on that road back to his father, the son was invited to take off his old self, to use Paul's words, and to put on the new self. He brings out the best robe, showing him that this son was going to be have a place of distinction again. He gives them his sandals, saying, you're not a slave. Only slaves are barefoot. You're a son. And he gives them his signet ring, as if to say, you are once again a co-heir. You are part of the family business. You are part of this family, a member of this household. It's like Paul's message. 
We are told to cast off that Gentile way of living as if we are still under Adam and to accept the gifts, to accept the unity, and to accept the new self that we find in Christ. And right away, what happened to that son? He wasn't just given some old bread, some leftovers. He was given a feast. There was a sound of a celebration and music. That is how our Father deals with us. There was a seat at the table for him, and it was a seat that came with no pressure. It wasn't that scene that we picture in a palace at a fancy dinner. It was that kind of dinner where you're laughing and you're leaning back and you're enjoying the other people at the table, the ways that you're the same, the ways that you're different, but no pressure. This is what we're invited to in chapters 4 and 5. It's not a list of ways to make sure that you're earning God's favor. Your favor has been bought, bought with the blood of Jesus. So go and live into your identity, not up to it. Live into your identity as a member of God's family. No pressure to live up to it. What difference does that make in your life, guys? What actually changes in your behavior this week? What, what changes in your thought life? What changes in your responses to God? Pressure does not help us actually perform better. <laughs> pressure paralyzes us, makes us a captive, makes us a slave to our own limitations to be good, godly women. But being a slave for the Lord, a prisoner for the Lord, a slave to the righteousness, frees us up to enjoy his love and to love each other well. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bring your good truth to our minds, our hearts, and our hands, Lord that we would catch a vision for how good it is to be loved by you and that we would go and live likewise. Thank you for this hinge in the book. Thank you that we can look back and see all of the blessings in the heavenly places. And then we turn on this Tuesday and we say, oh, this is how I want to live in light of that. Amen. We'll see you next week, guys.